from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Bechalotecha. This week, Yiska Smith discusses Bechalotecha. Yiska Smith is an adjunct member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Yiska Smith. Shalom, everyone. Shalom, shalom. In this podcast, I'm going to explore the Jewish spiritual practice of cultivating humility, anava. What is humility? Why is it important? What is its power? This teaching will be based on an essay from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in his article, Humility from Covenant and Conversation, in 2008, where he compares Moshe Rabbeinu's responses to two different events in Parshat Baha'alotcha. He begins, I find it one of the most revealing moments in Moses' life. To understand it, though, we must remember the context. He has just been challenged by the Israelites to provide them with meat. So in Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6, B'medbar Yid Aleph, Pesukim Dalad Hey and Vav, as follows. I'll read the English, and then I'll read the Hebrew. If only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite we never see anything but this manna. Ain kal bilti el haman enenu. It is not their desire for meat that distresses Moses so much as their false nostalgia, their ingratitude, their continued failure to grow up. He prays to die. He actually asks Hashem, requests of Hashem in Numbers 11. A few pesukim later, 11 through 15. B'midbar, yud aleph, yud aleph through tetovav. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you? That you put the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin, Moshe 
האנוכי הרית את כל העם הזה? את אנוכי ילידתיהו? כי תאמר אלי שאהו בחיקך? כאשר יישא האומן את היונק? על האדמה אשר נשבעת לאבותיו? מאין לי בשר לתת לכל העם הזה? כי יבכו עלי לאמור תנא לנו בשר ונאכלה. לא אוכל אנוכי לבדי לשאת את כל העם הזה, כי כבד ממני. ואם ככה את עושה לי, הגני, נא הרוג אם מצאתי חן בעיניך, ואל ערער ברעתי. Such moving, moving, moving words from Moshe Rabbeinu's heart. Rav Sachs continues. The crisis passes, but now a new challenge arises. In the next chapter in Numbers, chapter 12, in the very beginning, verses 1 and 2, B'midbar, Yud Bet, Aleph and Bet. Miriam and Aharon begin to talk against Moshe because of his Kushit wife. For he had married a Kushite. And they say, has the Lord spoken only through Moshe? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. The nature of their complaint really will not concern us. What gives this episode its intensity is not what is said, but who said it. This is not the people, still less the mixed multitude, as the previous episode tells us. This is Moshe's own brother and sister, the sister who watched over him as a baby, as he floated down the Nile in a reed basket, the brother who was his, was his faithful companion in some of his most risk-laden encounters. To be criticized by the crowd or by opponents is one thing. To be turned on by those closest to you is altogether different and unnerving. And what is Moshe's response? Nothing. The text is explicit at this point for a reason. Now, there can be there's an absence of a response which comes from simply not knowing. There is another which comes from not caring. The Torah wishes us to know that neither is the case here. Instead, Moshe's equanimity comes from deep within his character. As the Pasuk informs us, in Pasuk Gimel, in, in the third verse. Now Moshe was a, very, was a very humble man, more than anyone else on the face of the earth. It is not Moshe who reacts, but it's God who does so on his behalf. It is God. The sentence is strange, both in the sentiment it expresses and in its place in the narrative. Moshe humble? 
The Pasuk tells us Moshe is anav ma'od makol adam the man who spoke words of fire, who was undaunted in the presence of Paro, who led an entire people out of slavery, who was unafraid to argue with God himself. The man who smashed the tablets after seeing the golden calf. Was this a humble man? And Rav Sachs further asks, and what is the place of this sentence in the story of Miriam and Aharon? It seems to interrupt the flow. Verse 2 tells us that God heard their remarks. Verse 4 tells us that he replied. Moshe at this stage is not party to the conversation at all. Verse 3 breaks the sequence. For that reason, a number of English translations put it in parentheses. The third point that Rav Sachs raises, besides this, why is Moshe so calm in the face of this seeming betrayal by those closest to him, when in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, he had been so agitated by the people's request for meat, a challenge of a type he had faced and overcome before? The questions answer one another. The people's challenge was directed not against Moshe. The people's challenge was directed against God or fate or circumstance, not against him. That is why he cared. Miriam and Aharon's challenge was directed against him personally. That is why he was serene. Moshe did not care about himself. If he had, he would have never had been able to survive a single day as leader of this fractious, unstable people. He cared about the cause, about God and freedom and responsibility. If I may add, about the shlichut, his mission, his divinely appointed mission. That was what made him humble. Humility, now Rav Rav Sachs begins to teach us, what is humility? Humility is not what it sometimes is taken to be. A low estimate of oneself, a low self-esteem, that is false or counterfeit humility. That's anavabba sheker. True humility is mindlessness of self. It's what we call in Hebrew, it's a bitul yeshut. A person who's considered to be an anav, as Moshe was referred to here in the Pasuk, is one who never thinks about himself because he has more important things to think about. (laughs) I once heard, Rav Sachs tells us, I once heard someone say about a religious leader, he took God so seriously that he didn't need to take himself seriously at all. That is biblical humility. Moshe cared about others only once when he heard he would not enter the land. Eretz Yisrael, Eretz HaKodesh. He had spent 40 years leading his people toward this land Did he pray on his own behalf? That was the only time he actually prayed on his own behalf. Even then, he was not thinking about himself, but the land. In truth, he was not even thinking about the land, but rather about witnessing God's promise fulfilled.
Humility, teaches Rob Sachs, is not self-abasement. It is not self-anything. And that's the point. It is the ability to stand in silent awe in the presence of otherness. The thou of God, the otherness of other people, the majesty of creation, the beauty of the world, the power of great ideas, the call of great ideals. Humility is the silence of the self in the presence of that which is greater than the self. How values change. Humility is the orphaned virtue of our age. Its demise, though, came a century later with the threatening anonymity of mass culture alongside the loss of neighborhoods and congregations. And yet there remains an irrepressible human urge for for recognition. This is a shame. Humility, true humility, is one of the most expansive and life-enhancing of all virtues. It does not mean undervaluing yourself. It means valuing other people. It signals an openness to life's grandeur and the willingness to be surprised, uplifted by goodness wherever one finds it. I learned the meaning of humility, Rav Sachs continues, from my late father. He was an enthusiast. He had, this was what I so cherished in him, the capacity to admire. That is the greater part of humility, the capacity to be open to something greater than oneself. It reminds me of, um, of Heschel when he teaches about spiritual living is the cultivation of radical amazement. Take nothing for granted. Live in radical amazement. And Rav, can, Rav Sachs continues, false humility is the pretense that one is small. True humility is the consciousness of standing in the presence of greatness which is why it is the virtue of prophets, those who feel most vividly the nearness of. As a young man full of questions about faith, Rav Sachs tells tells us, I traveled to the United States where I had heard there were outstanding rabbis, including the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, Zechet Tzadik Levracha, Wherever I traveled, I heard tales of his extraordinary leadership, many verging on the miraculous. He was, I was told, one of the outstanding charismatic leaders of our time. I resolved to meet him if I could. In fact, I did have the privilege of meeting him and was utterly surprised. He was certainly not charismatic in any conventional sense. Quiet, self-effacing, understated. One might hardly have noticed him had it not been for the reverence in which he was held by his disciples. That meeting, though, changed my life. He was a world-famous figure. I was an anonymous student from 3,000 miles away. Yet, in his presence, I seemed to be the most important person in the world. He asked me about myself. He listened carefully. He challenged me to become a leader, 
something I had never contemplated before. Quickly, it became clear to me that he believed in me more than I believed in myself. As I left the room, it occurred to me that it had been full of my presence and his absence. That is what listening is, considered as a religious act, a spiritual practice of Rudabuchanit. I then knew that greatness is measured by what we efface ourselves towards. I want to repeat that. It's very, very important. This is, this is like a kernel of incredibly deep wisdom from Rav Sachs. I then knew that greatness is measured by what we efface ourselves towards. There was no grandeur in his manner, neither was there any false modesty. He was serene, dignified, majestic. A man of transcending humility who gathered you into his embrace and taught you to look up. Leadership, as anyone who has ever exercised it knows, is difficult. Mistakes that might be forgiven in someone else, in a leader or not. Even a leader who is in the right, especially when one is in the right, will be criticized. If he or she is responsible, they will be thinking about the future, which means, Chevra, disturbing the present, shaking up the status quo. And anyone who disturbs the present arouses anger, even a feeling of betrayal. A leader challenges people, and we do not like being challenged. He or she poses uncomfortable questions, the ones we would rather avoid, but they must be asked. A leader, indeed, anyone who follows in the footsteps of the prophets, the Nevi'im, is caught in the impossible tension between the demands of and the wishes of the people versus Reality as it is. How do leaders survive? Some by cunning and adroitness, some by ruthless suppression of opponents, others by indomitable belief in themselves. None of these apply to true spiritual giants, nor are they worthy of emulation by us. True leaders survive by believing in the cause something greater than themselves and not in themselves. That's the shlichut. That's the mission. That is whatever the idea, the values may be for that person. They do not take personal attacks personally. They respect the fact that their message will be difficult, that they are asking others to change, and that change is never less then painful. The most eloquent people in history were the ones most convinced of their inability to speak. It is not that Moshe lacked self-confidence or self-worth or a sense of personal destiny. Such considerations are utterly irrelevant. It is that he, more than others, and this is why the Pasuk considers him to be the most humble, he knew the difficulty of the task ahead. 
He knew how painful it is to get people to acknowledge reality as it is, rather than as they wish it to be. He knew how hard it is to get people to change, precisely because he was thinking about the task, not about himself. He declared himself unequal to it. And it is just this that made him the most qualified to do it. Hence, Moshe, quoting the Pasuk, was a very humble man, more than anyone else on the face of the earth. Vaish Moshe, Anav Ma'od, Mikala Adama Sha'apaneha Adama. Humility then is more than just a virtue. It is a form of perception. It's consciousness, a language in which the I becomes silent so that I can hear the thou, the unspoken call beneath human speech. The cold, the mamadaka, the still small voice within us, the divine whisper within all that moves, the voice of otherness that calls me to redeem its loneliness with the touch of love. Ahava, humility is what opens us to the world. And Hevra, friends, all of you who are listening, this is what defines humility as the cultivation of a Jewish spiritual practice. Nor is it as rare as we may think. Time and again, when someone died and I conducted the funeral or visited the mourners, Rabbi Sachs tells us, I discovered that the deceased had led a life of generosity and kindness unknown unknown to even close relatives. I came to the conclusion when I did not fully understand before I was given this window into private worlds that the vast majority of saintly or generous acts are done quietly with no desire for public recognition. That is humility. And what a glorious revelation it is of the human spirit. Gilui Hanefesh. Oh. Hmm. True virtue never needs to advertise itself. That is why today's aggressive marketing of personality is so sad. It speaks of loneliness, the profound endemic loneliness of a world without relationships, of fidelity and trust. It testifies ultimately to a loss of faith a loss of that knowledge so precious to previous generations that beyond the visible surfaces of this world is a presence who knows us, loves us, and takes notice of our deeds. What else, secure in that knowledge, what else could we need? And does it matter that humility no longer fits the confines of our age? <clears throat> the truth is that moral beauty, like music, always moves those who can hear beneath the noise. Virtues may be out of fashion, but they are never out of date. The things that call attention to themselves are never interesting for long. 
which is why our attention span grows shorter by the year. Humility, the polar opposite of advertisements for myself, never fails to leave its afterglow. And Ralph Sachs concludes, We know when we have been in the presence of someone in whom the divine presence breathes. And if I may add, becomes revealed. Because the divine presence breathes in all of us. But it's when it's revealed. We feel affirmed, enlarged, and with good reason. For we have met someone who, not taking himself or herself seriously at all, has shown us what it is to take with utmost seriousness seriousness, that which is not I. I would like to suggest that the following Talmudic insight provides us with the foundation for Rabbi Sachs' illuminating discussion on humility, anava. In Mesechat Megillah 31a, Lamed Aleph Amud Aleph, Lamed Aleph, yes, Daf Lamed Aleph Amud Aleph. Our sages taught, the Chazal taught, where you find the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be here, be he, there you will find his humility. Where you find the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be he, there you will find his humility. The Balatanya, Rav Shneer Zaman of Ladi, asks, how is it possible to approach God's greatness, to find it and be united with it? He answers that only through God's humility, by God compressing his infinite will and wisdom into the finite words and letters of the Torah, enabling the finite individual to indeed grasp and unite with the infinite. Cultivating humility, anava, is to be godly. And being that the human being has been created in the image of God, B'Tselem Elohim, cultivating humility manifests Our own inner being has exactly that, infinite godliness. In conclusion, I invite you, all of you, to consider how you can begin mindfully, with intent and meaning, cultivating humility in each of your own unique and authentic ways, perhaps in a way of thinking, developing the consciousness of humility, the consciousness of living in the presence of greatness, perhaps in speech, beginning to attentively listening to the other and then speak to the other in a way so the other feels that you have allowed his or her presence to fill your space, perhaps in a new behavior where at times you mindfully restrain from doing, cultivating the silence of the self, in the presence of that which is greater than self. After all, we are human beings, and not human doings. What can each of you do to gently and softly quiet the eye so that you can hear and be aware 
of the Tao, the unspoken call beneath human thought, speech, and deed. The call de mamadaka, that still small voice, the divine whisper within all that moves, the voice of otherness that beckons each of us to redeem its loneliness with the touch of love. Humility is what opens us to the world. Shalom v'koltuv v'lihitraot. Tadah. Thank you, Yiska. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next episode of Pardis from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.